I'm uh, happy to welcome Nicole Orzakowski, the Section Chief of Rheumatology, uh, to introduce today's speaker. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Lisa Mandel, um, who is an Assistant Research Professor of Medicine and an Assistant Research Professor of Healthcare Policy and Research at Cornell. So Lisa completed her medical degree and her residency in internal medicine at the University of British Columbia. She then became a rheumatology fellow at Brigham and Women's Hospital and went on to earn a master's degree in public health from the Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Mandel is a clinical investigator and an attending rheumatologist at Hospital for Special Surgery, where she's actively involved in research, patient care, and teaching. And the focus of her research is inflammatory arthritis and osteoarthritis, including predictors of outcomes after total joint replacement. She's been funded by the NIH, the AHRQ, the American College of Rheumatology, the Arthritis Foundation, and multiple other foundations throughout her career. She has 75 peer-reviewed publications and numerous book chapters and reviews. Um, she is an associate editor for the Annals of Internal Medicine, as well as an author for Up to Date. And she's presented her work around the world, and we're delighted that she can be here with us today to talk about knee osteoarthritis. So Lisa, welcome, and thank you for being here. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate the opportunity to come, and I, I should do this more often. It makes me feel very good about myself, so thank you. Um, so I'm going to talk today. Is this the right level of sound? I'm going to talk today about um, knee osteoarthritis, which I hope is um, something probably that everybody sees in medicine. And some of this is sort of an overview, and some is a little more um, controversial, so I'm happy to um, have you challenge me on anything that I'm saying. So thank you. These are my disclosures. So these are the learning objectives, really, to sort of a quick overview of some basic epidemiology to understand why we should try to treat knee osteoarthritis maybe more than just uh, making your patients feel better, to talk a little bit, too, about placebo effect when we think about how we treat patients in general, but knee arthritis specifically, and then talk a bit about some of the injectable therapies that uh, we use for knee osteoarthritis. So knee osteoarthritis. So as you know, it's, uh, osteoarthritis in general is a, a leading cause of disability in the U.S. And knee osteoarthritis particularly is very important. You know, about 4% of women, 6% of men over the age of 20 have knee osteoarthritis. And it's estimated about half of all U.S. adults will have knee OA by the age of 85. And about a quarter of adults over 55, which is kind of scary as 55 doesn't seem that old, have knee pain on most days. And that's a lot of people. And that pain is mostly due to knee osteoarthritis. And despite it being already very common, the prevalence of knee OA is going to go up for a number of reasons. First one is aging. So, you know, older age is the most potent non-modifiable risk factor for knee osteoarthritis. And the aging of the U.S. population, you know, is just tremendous. I mean, this is such an impressive slide. If you look at by 2050, how many people are going to be over 75, it's sort of incredible. And so knee osteoarthritis is going to explode. But important to remember, you know, symptomatic knee osteoarthritis is not normal aging. There's no doubt that damage to the cartilage is, you know, probably unavoidable in later life. And you know, autopsy, there's a number of studies in this. And autopsies have looked and basically found everyone over 65 essentially has some damage to their knee cartilage. But when you go back and try and correlate that with symptoms, really the minority of people have severe or symptomatic osteoarthritis that really correlates. So, you know, 
it's not the same thing. Pathology is really not destiny. Um, so while we age, the pathologic joint damage is probably inevitable, but symptomatic NEOA is not. And it's important, I think, to communicate that, communicate that to our patients. Um, and this link between pathology and what's going on in the joint and the clinical symptoms is not fully elucidated. Um, and possibly, you know, it, osteoarthritis is not just cartilage. It's a whole joint disease. And the symptoms may well be more tightly linked to the intraarticular milieu rather than just all the gross anatomic changes. And it's important to remember that that intraarticular milieu is modifiable. And I'm going to talk a bit about that later. So um, what are the risk factors for knee osteoarthritis, right? One of the biggest, so age, and then obesity. So, you know, obesity, age is the strongest non-modifiable. Obesity is the strongest modifiable risk factor for both incidence and progression of NEOA. And we all know, unfortunately, obesity in the U.S. is huge, 35% in men, 40% in women. And these rates are continuing to increase. And so, in fact, young people today could have even higher rates in NEOA than we see now. So other reasons for knee osteoarthritis are, these are the most common sports that lead to damage to the knee. So athletics. And greater participation in organized sports has led to, you know, a really, again, a tremendous increase in the rates of especially ACL rupture. Uh, cumulative population risk of, risk of ACL injury is about 5%. And we know that half the people who injure, who rupture their ACL will have severe symptomatic OA within two decades. And that's regardless of whether or not you repair the ACL. And in fact, female athletes, and this is a whole talk on itself, are about almost four times as much to have a non-contact ACL injury compared to men. So with a lot of girls and women playing sports, that's also a tremendous uh, increase in the knee osteoarthritis we're going to see over time. So I'll just say, conversely, with this increased rate of obesity and increased participation in athletics, especially teenagers, we're also seeing a tremendous increase in younger patients with the OA. In fact, about half the people with symptomatic OA are under 65. And I think it's amazing, 2 million people with NEOA are less than 45. And these patients are going to need safe and effective therapy for decades. So that's why it's really important, especially to think about how we're going to treat these people. And so why should you treat osteoarthritis? Well, of course, to relieve pain of our patients and make them feel better. Um, but, it, but we know that it's really undertreated, so we know that, yet we don't treat them well enough. And a lot of patients accept that NEOA pain is just normal aging. I'm going to have a little pain. I just accept that. And we know it's, it, it's especially undertreated in the community. Most, many patients have significant residual pain even when they're on therapy. Most common treatment for knee osteoarthritis are NSAIDs. That's what we use even for people who are over 75, which is really problematic because up to 30% of all GI hospitalizations in the elderly are specifically to do, due to GI use. And I always feel like as a rheumatologist, we see one end of the telescope, we're giving NSAIDs, they work great for a lot of patients. We don't see the other end where the emergency room and the GI folks are like, saying, you know, stop, stop the NSAIDs. So we, we need some better therapies. So other reason to treat knee osteoarthritis. So let me just explain this. Um, graph. So this is a, a group of patients who have end stage, who have knee osteoarthritis and uh, hip osteoarthritis. And the y-axis is survival. And what they did is they looked at these patients over time and looked at survival. And they looked at uh, survival stratified by level of walking disability by hacks. So the dark line are people who have essentially no walking disability. And as you go down, they have more disability. You can see as you go out over time, the more disability you have, the more likely you are to die. So 
this isn't proven, but at, if you can treat patients and improve their, their disability from their knee osteoarthritis, they may actually live longer. And this is another similar graph, same thing. This is patients who had a knee replacement. Now, of course, people who choose to have a knee replacement are healthier than people who don't have a knee replacement, yes. Um, this is, a, again, a group of patients who did this, and what they did is they followed them out over 12 years, and you can see in the red line, if you don't have a knee replacement after about one year, the lines diverge, and you're, you're actually more likely to die than people, people who had a knee replacement. This is somewhat controversial. People have, in the rheumatology world have argued about this and saying, oh, this intractable confounding by indication. You know, this is not true, and there's been letters back and forth. But regardless, this is a very good group. They've done lots of, they control for lots of confounders. And this suggests that if you can fix disability, you might actually live longer. And there are other studies as well that have looked at that specifically. And this survival benefit is really due to increased mobility. So another reason to treat away is really perhaps increasing mobility may decrease morbidity and mortality in our patients beyond just pain and function. And so another reason, potentially, so I'm just going to back a little bit and give some background. So we know that it's not just rheumatoid arthritis, but inflammation is clearly associated with knee osteoarthritis. We know that now. And synovitis, inflammation in the knee, which is a manifestation of local inflammation, is seen in about half of knees that have painful knee away, both when you go into surgery and look and also an MRI. And we know that if you have the synovitis, it's correlated with both severity of pain cross-sectionally and longitudinally. So this is just a piece of synovium from a pa one of our patients who was having a knee replacement. And this patient had osteoarthritis. But look at this, incredible inflammation, some plasma cells, even a Russell body. And in fact, the pathologist said, well, this patient you know, is, it has RA, right? And I said, no, I mean, she's like in her 70s. Believe me, she has osteoarthritis. And this is, this is what her synovium looked like. Here's just another picture. You can see the, the blue arrow is, this again, knee OA. Blue arrow is fluid, and the red arrow is big, thick synovium. Almost looks like sort of liver. This is synovitis in a patient with osteoarthritis. And so why might this be important? Well, we know that pain is a big problem. And people who have knee OA has been shown, we know that they have altered pain processing, both central and peripheral. And you can measure it different ways. This temporal summation of pressure pain thresholds are you have like a filament and you can tap on their knee and they say they sort of cry uncle much sooner than people who don't have chronic pain. You can also measure fMRI and the brain will light up with very minimal peripheral nociceptive inputs. Um, and we know that people with neoaid, well, you can measure these abnormalities before they develop chronic pain and it predates and predicts it. And in fact, inflammation, this is not, this is sort of one theory, and there's some data for it, may play a critical role in actually development of this abnormal pain processing and then going on to chronic pain. And so inflammation in the knee may prime these peripheral nociceptors to amplify this pain stimuli, and then you end up getting chronic pain. And the problem is that once you have this abnormal pain processing in place, you no longer require the original trigger. So it doesn't matter then how much you treat the knee. Once that abnormal processing is in place, that's the problem. And so, so why treat NAOA? Not just for symptomatic pain relief, but you may also improve morbidity and mortality. And by decreasing the inflammatory nociceptive input early, you may prevent the development of chronic pain. And we all know chronic pain is a huge issue. And this may also be one reason why you know, up to 20% of, of knee replacements are not effective. People complain about chronic pain. They look, the prosthesis is perfect. They come see a rheumatologist. I'm like, you know, I'm trying. They end up doing lots of different things to try and fix their knee pain. It may be that taking out that knee isn't the problem. 
right? The problem is they already have the abnormal pain processing. So treating early may help mitigate that. So I wanted to talk a bit then about intraarticular therapies. Um, we, there's no D mode for OA at the moment, but we can certainly modify the intraarticular milieu of these patients. So the, uh, the American College of Rheumatology recommends, these are the recommendations for pharmacologic therapy. This is, of course, after you've done all the non-pharmacologic, which is what you should do. Um, and you can see that they do recommend intraarticular corticosteroid injections. Um, and they have no, they're sort of agnostic on intraarticular hyaluronan, although if you read, continue reading, they say, well, you know, once things have failed, it's okay, worth trying maybe. So they do recommend some intraarticular therapies. Now, I wanted to talk a bit about how we decide whether or not a medication works. So we know that the gold standard for thinking if a medication works is a placebo-controlled randomized control trial, right? And a positive trial means that the treatment is more effective than the placebo by some predefined specific amount, and then we believe it, right? However, it's really important to understand that the effectiveness of any therapy is a combination. It's a combination of what we call the specific effects, which is the pharmacologic effect, and also this nonspecific effect that's derived from the context in which the treatment is given, which could be placebo effect, or we could call it contextual effect when it's given as part of regular care. So it's sort of this combination. And this actually may explain what we call the efficacy paradox, because there are randomized controlled trials of certain therapies which basically show that stuff doesn't work or minimally work, but it's FDA approved, goes out in the community, and patients love it. They swear that it works, and it, this tension really happens. And it may be because those types of medicines, for example, may have a relatively small pharmacologic effect, which is what the RCT says, oh, it doesn't work because, you know, an RCT, so here's the placebo effect, right? And here's the medical, the, the, the medicine, the, the intervention. If the medicine is only this much better, it's going to say, oh, there's only a little pharmacologic effect. The rest of the benefit is placebo, same as the saline or whatever you're giving. Um, but, you know, the patients don't care so much. The patients, I don't know if I'm, the patients see this, right? They don't care how much is blue and how much is green. This is what they see. They see the full benefit. And it, it, it's, it's clearly a combination of both. And, and why am I bringing this up here? Um, or first of all, let me say, so if the, if the yellowy green is, placebo, is the contextual effect, what makes that large? What, what blows it up? A couple of things. When there's an expectation of benefit, the placebo contextual effect is larger. Um, and when you, in a, in a trial, for example, when you get a treatment in a medical environment, it, it triggers this. You, you think you come to this fancy place and the doctors are all there, the nurses are giving it, you, you think it's going to work. There's this clear expectation of benefit based on prior experience in the environment. Also in trials, an informed consent process often kind of oversells. You know, you've got to convince people to go in. It's true, but when you read that as a patient, you think it's going to work. That's why it's being offered. And also, um, in a trial, staff, you're very invested in it. Staff and investigators know also that there's often a large placebo effect, especially in pain trials, and that subjects probably will improve. So there's also this a lot of positive um, sort of vibes. Actually, this is especially true in dose-finding trials. So when you have like a placebo and then three arms with different levels of uh, different amounts of therapy, you're trying to figure out the dose, you, you think, well, three, you know, three to one, you're going to benefit. So people kind of know that. There's this real expectation of benefit. And this unconsciously affects both the patient's responses and also the assessments that people are giving. So that's one thing. 
Also, just general attention. The more you come in, you become familiar with the trial, the nurses, the area. It leads to an increased therapeutic effect, and that's clearly been shown. Um, and one of the most common reasons, of course, for having a large placebo contextual effect is inadequate blinding in a trial. Um, and this can occur at subject, staff, greater level. Why? You know, there's side effects, improvement in symptoms, differences between the taste, look of the placebo and the drug. People can figure it out, and that increases the placebo effect. And also, you know, the staff and physicians often are also very primed to side effects, and that often kind of clues them into what the patient's getting if there's not appropriate blinding. And that can result in a positive trial because that placebo effect blows up. <coughs> so what's interesting, so this group has done a really nice job. They said, okay, well, what is the breakdown of the placebo contextual effect and the pharmacologic effect in the medicines that we use to treat osteoarthritis. And what they found is, see, overall, so the blue is the contextual effect and the red is the, um, is the specific or pharmacologic effect. And the way they do this is they just go to the trials, right, and they look at the difference between the active treatment and the placebo, and they look at the delta. So the delta above and beyond the placebo would be the actual pharmacologic effect, right? Because if the placebo effect works this much, well, then this much of the treatment is also placebo or contextual effect. So they went back and looked at a variety of different trials, and they looked at what's the difference. And they found that, you know, 70 of, of the treatments that we use and believe, you know, 75% is really kind of contextual effect was no better than placebos. And if you look, what's interesting, sorry, this is, um, this is intraarticular hyaluronic, so this is a, one of the injectable therapies, 80% is contextual effect. Intraarticular corticosteroid, and I just showed you that we know that there's a lot of inflammation in the osteoarthritis. It's interesting, you know, they didn't know this when they looked at this, but it actually has the smallest contextual effect and the largest specific effect. You know, maybe there really is inflammation, maybe inflammation is really important when you put the needle in and give steroids, it really helps. So. Um, you know, in all our therapies, it's important to understand that it's a mixture of how we give these therapies to our patients. And why I think this is particularly important in <clears throat> knee osteoarthritis, um, and in terms of in trying to maybe change the internal milieu of the knee, is that different kinds of placebos have different contextual effects. And specifically, we really know that injectable placebos have a much stronger effect than oral placebos. So people have looked at gone and looked at intraarticular. These are placebos. You know, they're not supposed to work. And they found effect sizes of about sort of 0.29, which is not huge, but it's better than the point estimate, for example, of acetaminophen, which we think is real and works. So these work better potentially than acetaminophen, although, you know, oops, sorry, basically it's the same number, but the point, size, the effect, the point estimate is higher. Um, and then so people have looked at this, and recently there were two meta-analyses of the placebo arms of, of RCTs for knee osteoarthritis. So they forget the active treatment. They looked at the placebo arm and they did a meta-analysis. And what they found is if you just look at that, intraarticular saline within the context of an RCT produced a statistically and clinically meaningful improvement in NEOA up to six months. Um, and so this suggests that the, if the intraarticular placebo works, just say makes it better, that the intraarticular therapy to which it was controlled is probably more effective than you, than you think because um, let's say the placebo works this much and the intraarticular therapy works this much, it's gonna be a negative trial, right? It's gonna say it doesn't work. Um, and this gets back to, but the patients say that you give that to me, it, it does work. So um, I think this has been a, 
a sort of a learning piece for a lot of us that in terms of whether or not we should give intraarticular therapies to our patients. So that's what I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, was talking about the intraarticular uh, therapies that we can offer to our patients. So intraarticular corticosteroids. So we all know that this is the most common injectable therapy for knee osteoarthritis. And rheumatologists have been treating NEOA with intraarticular steroids for at least half a century. Um, there was a recent update from the Cochrane Review on the efficacy of intraarticular steroids in NEOA. And this is what it showed because there's, there's been a lot of data over time. So if you can see here the, the, the graph here where the zero is, that's sort of no difference. And on the, on the left, is favoring corticosteroids, on the right is favoring whatever the control was. So if you look at the top, this is all trials. You can see that generally, you know, it clearly seems to that corticosteroids does, do, do relieve pain in patients with NEOA. Um, mostly here, you can see really one to two weeks, and it gets a little less strong as you move up. Um, three months, six months, not so much. And then they split into small trials and large trials, and uh, Large trials are generally better, but there are many, many fewer, but you can see clearly similar trends. So it really suggests that intraarticular steroids do help with pain, at least in the short term, maybe not so much in the long term. So that then the question is, how often should you give steroids, right? Rheumatologists say, oh, you know, no more than three injections a year in the same joint, you know, wave our hands, who knows? That's, I think, what we all say. That's a convention. And why do we say that? Well, originally in the sort of 60s and 50s, there were reports of, you know, disasters and Charcot joints after short-term, using short-term steroids multiple times. If you go back and read them, they have these pictures of, like, green glunk in the OR. I mean, completely destroyed joints. But really, a lot of those studies, they had sort of between 12 and 22 injections over one year. And they were much stronger steroids than we use. So we've sort of said, oh, can't do it more than that. But it's really based on these kinds of data. And there's really no good evidence that using steroids periodically in clinical practice will result in any significant harm to our patients. Um, and that's mostly based on a study that was out maybe 10 or 15 years ago that was an RCT, looked at, at in, uh, injectable corticosteroids versus a sham saline. And they gave it every three months over two years. And what they found was no significant difference in cartilage. And there was actually no difference in pain, really, except in one, one sort of sub-study. But basically, it looked fine, seemed safe, and that's what we've kind of said, okay, we can do that. Now, importantly, that was based on x-rays. And you guys are probably familiar with this. So this was a study that came out just recently in JAMA looking at, it's essentially the same study, looking at intraarticular trimcinolone versus saline. And they really want to say is using MRI to see if it's going to affect cartilage over time and also. So um, I'm like, okay, great. Update this because I think steroids are, you know, are great for my patients. <laughs> so what they did is they gave triamcinolone. Uh, comparator was saline. And importantly, all patients here had to have ultrasound evidence of synovitis because now we know that inflammation is really important, correlates with pain. The previous study, which didn't really show an improvement pain, didn't look for synovitis. So they made sure that all these patients had some inflammation, um, entered the trial, and they got each of these injectable therapies every three months for 12 years. I'm oh, sorry, for every 
three months for two years. Okay? And so what did they find? Well, there's no difference in pain. And what they found was that the steroid arm actually had significantly greater cartilage loss than the saline group. And this wasn't because the saline group, you know, helped. Basically, the saline group had a little bit of loss of cartilage, like you would, just what you would expect over two years. Um, and so that wasn't the reason that they found this. So I said, what I felt was like, oh, no, what am I going to You know, is this a problem? And I think it's really important. To, so this study, that it says, you know, so we do not recommend this for your patients without knee osteoarthritis. I think there's two things that are really important to remember. This is a strategy. So the strategy of giving steroids every three months is probably not a good strategy. It probably does decrease cartilage over time. I can tell you, it was not very much. It was like a tiny little bit on MRI. But there, there are good data to show that if you decrease your cartilage over time, you're more likely to need a knee replacement. And so I think, you know, if you have patients where there's no other option, you need to tell them that. I think this is probably true. It may, may advance how quickly you need a knee replacement, but maybe that's okay with them. And also it's really important that the take-home is not that you shouldn't ever use corticosteroids for knee replacement. When do we, I mean, I think most of us probably don't use this strategy to treat patients. This is when people have a sort of a flare of their knee arthritis. You give them a steroid injection and it helps. You might see them six months later, a year later, you know, it works. So it does not say that you should not use steroids periodically. That's not the take home. And I think there was a letters back and forth in JAMA saying that. So, um, but it is interesting that it does suggest that this strategy is probably not the one to go, to, to use. So that's um, sort of some information about corticosteroids. And then I, oh, and also, it was interesting, I should add, it, it didn't show a difference in pain, which you think, how can that be? So what's important to remember, too, remember I showed you that other graph where short-term pain was clearly better, but once you get to about three months, six months, it wasn't as, as, as impressive. They measured pain every three months when they came in. So if the steroids kind of worked for one month, two months, and then came down at three months, they may well have missed the benefit that steroids are giving. And then that's important as well. So let's take that in context. I, 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 mean, I think we all believe that steroids do help our patients, especially people with, with inflammation. So I also wanted to talk a bit about intraarticular hyaluronin, and I don't know if that's used much here. Um, I think surgeons tend to use it more than rheumatologists. But so viscose supplementation or hyaluronic acid. So this is a term that was coined in the 70s for replacing the synovial fluid with these injections of hyaluronin. So hyaluronin are these big, like, bushy molecules that close a lot of water. Um, and naturally, your synovium secretes HA into, your, into the, the fluid around your joint. And when you get osteoarthritis, these big, long molecules actually break up into smaller molecules. They get broken up, and these smaller molecules aren't as viscous. So you get more watery fluid. And the idea is originally that you would put in HA. It's kind of like oiling your ball bearings, and everything gets back, and now you're good, and now you can kind of walk again. So we thought that HA works via this physical ability to diffuse high-impact loads. And this is actually where the original data came from. So in Boston, they, in the 70s, uh, injected racehorses with HA who were lame, and then they ran, and apparently they won. So this was not a, you know, placebo effect. Like, these horses were lame, they ran, and, and, oh, and then so people thought, let's give it to to people. 
um, and a lot of the original work was done done in Boston. So, so how does HA work? Well, I can tell you it doesn't work just by the greasing the, the joint because when you radio label it, you put it in the knee, it's gone in you know hours to days depending on the size of the macromolecule. So, doesn't spend time in the joint, it's gone. So, it works some other way. I list here, and the li- this is actually you, I have a longer list. There's many, many theories as to why it works. And there's basically an animal model or a rabbit or something for every one of these and more. So I don't really know how it works. It's probably a combination of anti-inflammatory, um, you know, upregulating certain cytokines or downregulating, but a combination, um, if you believe it works, it's probably a combination of different things. So the question is, does HA work, right? I think that's a very good question because it's really been quite controversial. And I think when you go back and trace the history, initially there were randomized control trials which came out in sort of the early, late 90s, early 2000s, well done. And these were negative trials. If you go back there, negative trials. But they did show some positive results in sort of ad hoc or subgroup analysis. So they were published, and the abstracts would have these very strongly worded kind of positive conclusions, and the abstracts would sort of say it's positive, but when you went and read it, it really wasn't. And I think this led to a lot of skepticism among physicians, certain physicians. And in fact, there was an editorial that I remember reading that sort of hyaluronic sodium injections for OA, hope, hype, and hard truths. And, you know, people who know a lot about osteoarthritis said the largest placebo-controlled randomized trials of humans show no measurable efficacy compared with placebo. This is before all our, our talk about injectable placebos still working, but basically people said it didn't work, stop using it. And so what do you do when randomized control trials are unclear? Then you do meta-analysis, right? So people did ran to do meta-analysis. And so the first kind of meta-analysis were actually quite conflicting. Two said that it, these were all about the same time. Two said that it works. Two said, you know, maybe in some groups. And two basically said it, it doesn't work. So what do you do when you have conflicting meta-analysis? You do a Cochrane systematic review, right? So then there was a Cochrane systematic review. Um, They looked at 76 RCTs and basically, you know, very detailed. So their conclusion was, well, look, it it seems like HA may work on certain groups. Maybe weight-bearing pain at about, you know, 5 to 13 weeks seems like it may have some benefit. So that sort of... I think it was 2006, trying to figure out what works, what doesn't. So people have continued to look at this, continued to do meta-analysis. And so some more more recent meta-analysis have really suggested that there is a significant benefit of HA, both compared to placebo and to steroids. Effect size of sort of 0.3, 0.2, which is, as I showed you before, more than acetaminophen and kind of a reasonable effect size. Some of these meta-analysis now have also used more rigorous assessment of outcomes. So you know with meta-analysis, it totally depends on what you put in, right? If you have good quality studies, you get good quality out. So as things have evolved, people have done, you know, better and better RCTs. Um, and the la- sort of some of the latest data suggests that HA is probably, you know, 15 to 11% more effective to lead to what we call the Orsi-Omerat treatment response, which is sort of a, 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 the latest way that people like to look at outcomes in OA, that compared to placebo, it sort of seems like it does have some, you know, real benefit. So I think it's just an interesting, this is really, since I've been in practice, the whole 
attitude towards age, I think, has, at least in rheumatology, has really sort of, there's been fluctuations. So I think this is sort of the, the latest data. Uh, so the last um, treatment that I wanted to talk about was platelet-rich plasma. And I, is this a big thing here? Okay, so it's very interesting. So this is like hot, hot, hot topic, especially, I mean, people are doing it all over. So that, that's interesting. Um, so platelet-rich plasma. So what is it? So this is a blood plasma. It's blood plasma that's enriched with platelets. It's a concentrated source of autologous platelets. The idea is that these platelets have all these growth factors and good healing things in them that you can put in and will help make you feel better. Um, you know, especially stimulate the healing of soft tissues. Uh, so what they do, the platelets, though, have to be activated either endogenously or exogenously before they release these mediators. So these are some of the growth factors that are involved in wound healing that, that are definitely in platelets. So all these things, you know, potentially could help with osteoarthritis or healing and just multiple different ones. So how do you prepare PRP? So what you do is you collect the blood from someone, you spin it maybe once or twice, and you can see here, I think, yeah, so, so you get these levels of there's red blood cells at the bottom, then there's platelet-rich plasma, then there's platelet-poor plasma. So you, stick it, you suck out the platelet-rich plasma, and then you re-inject it with all these good healing um, cytokines that are in the platelets. So if you look at Google hits for PRP, you can see it's just exploded. So this is a really, really hot topic. So what's important to understand is that um, the devices to produce PRP are approved. The way you get a drug or a device approved in the States is you either do a new drug application, right, or a, an IND, abbreviated drug application, and then you can get FDA approval. And that's what I think most of us think about if we even think about this. But you can also approve devices via what's called a 510K application. And this does not require clinical data. So you can get approval from these 510K applications. They really are used for devices that are considered to be low risk, and they really focus primarily on safety. And the way you get it approved is you have to prove substantially that this device is substantially equivalent to a previous device that has already been approved. Okay, so basically this is how the devices for PRP have been approved, they get 510K clearance. And that, if you can show that your device is equivalent to a predicate device and is safe and capable of producing PRP, you can get it approved. Okay, so, so that, that's how, what, how these uh, devices have been approved. And so what's important is there is no standardization for platelet-rich plasma. Currently, there are over 40 commercial systems that are approved in the states to segregate and concentrate blood. However, there are huge variations in you know, how much blood do you spend? What's the concentration of platelets in the plasma? What's the volume of PRP that you inject? Are there RBCs in it? And they're sort of leukocyte-rich and leukocyte-poor. And the leukocytes may affect the inflammation and how well it works as well. You have to activate the platelets. Do you use thrombin or calcium chloride? How do you do it in the pH? Which all, all these things are there's they can vary, and so one study looked at um, seven commercially available PRP systems. And what they did is they got one person, they bled them a lot, I guess, and, and then they sent the blood out to the seven different companies. 
or something, and brought it back and then compared. Huge variations in white cells, red cells, platelet counts, and the growth factor concentrations depending on which they used. So this is, I think, a major issue at the moment. It's no standardization. However, is PRP approved to treat osteoarthritis? So no, it's not. So PRP, what it is FDA approved for is use in operative settings. You mix with bone graft and it helps with healing. It's approved for that. And all other use, like anything, you can use it off-label. Um, so, but you can certainly bill for it when you use it. So PRP right now is, is really being used for multiple different things. It's being used a lot in sports medicine, for tendinopathies. It's used for non-scarring hair loss. It's used for peripheral nerve repair. It's used in plantar fasciitis, periodontal disease, and it's used a lot in aesthetic surgery as well. Um, but what about for, for knee osteoarthritis? Well, I can tell you there are, there are actually maybe more now, but at least 15 randomized controlled trials looking at uh, PRP for knee osteoarthritis. And they're essentially all positive. They all say it works. And there are then, of course, you then have to do the meta-analysis to see and systematic reviews to try and put these data together. And again, there are multiple meta-analysis, and I just put down some of the most recent ones, um, and systematic reviews which conclude that, yes, intraarticular PRP injections are more efficacious than other treatment, including other injections. And you'll, at least where I am, you hear this all the time. There's one, though, in a non-surgical journal that says, well, although generally positive, overall, you know, we're not sure yet. Um, and, and just, so why do I bring this up? I think it's really, really important to understand that there's tremendous heterogeneity between these PRP randomized control trials. And again, what you put into a meta-analysis determines what you come out. If you have really heterogeneous input, it's hard to, un to know what this positive you know, output means. And it really limits the strength of the conclusions. And again, I want to get back to when I was talking about the placebo and contextual effects, that combination. Um, and we talked a bit about the three major contributions, why you blow up the placebo effect is blinding. So many of the RCTs for PRP are clearly inadequately blinded. And at least half of them, according to the, one of the most recent meta-analysis. And if you are not blinded, it favors the intervention, will make it seem more positive, it's going to favor PRP. Okay? We also talked about tremendous expectation of benefit. I can tell you, people are very excited about PRP. They think it's going to work. And also, talking about attention given at the point of care, you know, a lot of people are spinning this. They have a, I don't even know if it's a lab, but it's in their office. They come. But people are very excited about it. All the open-label trials are very hard to, they're all positive, hugely positive. Of, co of course, people think it's going to work. And I just want to say, why do they think it's going to work? So if you go onto the um, American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons website, this is, a, this is the, a quote. It says, many famous athletes, Tiger Woods, which we're all, you know, tennis star, Rafael Nadal, several others, have received PRP for various problems, such as sprained knees and chronic tendon injuries. And some athletes have credited PRP with their being able to return more quickly to competition. So I say there's expectation of benefit, that people really think it's going to work. And also, not just uh, athletes, but... You know, 2000 this year, this is an, an editorial in um, 
an orthopedic journal saying, you know, the time has come to try intraarticular platelet-rich plasma for your patients with symptomatic knee osteoarthritis. You know, and I've just, and, and he's, you know, they say all these trials are positive. We should, you know, s- start using it. And if you also go online, you can see it can regenerate the youth anew. There's just real, uh, I think, the cart ahead of the horse a little bit. You know, people are, are really, I mean, I have patients who have come in and tell me they've had it at some, some doctor in his office, and I'm like, uh, the, the, you know, the data is just not, it's not there yet. So this is the kind of thing that you can see online with it. So I think what's really interesting is, you know, how, we, how do you harness the placebo contextual effect for patient benefit? Because it's clearly there. And if it works, as I said, patients don't care what combination is pharmacologic, what combination is placebo contextual, if it makes them feel better. But how do we learn how to use that? I think it's a really interesting area and a good question. However, I think it's premature to do that until you really know that a therapy, a therapy is standardized, proven to work, safe, safe, and effective from high-quality studies. And then, well, how do we optimize that kind of contextual effect? And so I think... Um, in terms of PRP, you know, we're not quite there yet. It's interesting that this, it depends where around the country, I think it's PRP is really used differentially. And, you know, people write checks for it. They write checks and get it. So, um, so just a summary, I, I think, you know, knee osteoarthritis, I think a lot of people kind of throw up their hands and say, well, what can we do? But I think there's a lot we can do. And it's really a major con- contributor to population disability. And I think we should treat NEOA, thinking about not just to make people feel better now, but it clearly, if you can decrease, increase disability, usually by increasing your mobility, you can decrease really mortality and disability in the future. Um, We may also decrease chronic pain, but I think that is still part of what we're studying. And I think that injectable corticosteroids are really effective and underused in knee osteoarthritis with this little double asterisks, I don't think the strategy of Q3 months is really what we should do. But certainly use it for flares, works well. And I think I'm always surprised, I see patients and they've never had a steroid injection with their primary care doctor or their internist. It were, it, you know, it's definitely worth trying in patients. And I also think that based on the most recent data, hyaluronic acid or hyaluronic likely does benefit patients with NEOA. Um, I think we need more studies to decide who would benefit most. You know, it's, it's expensive. Um, it's, and what's cost-effective. You know, I always would try steroid injection first, but I, um, I'm actually using it more than I used to because I think in some patients it really works, and they don't have to take their NSAIDs. They don't have to take their Tylenol-3s at that time. And I think it's important to know that PRP is not approved, despite what you might read or see on there, and it is not approved for neosteoarthritis. Um, and we really need good studies desperately to, to figure out, you know, does it work and whom does it work? And, and there are groups out there trying to set up standardizations for it, which is great, but people are, you know, it's pretty um, remunerative. So um, not everyone is trying to adhere to these standards. Uh, as I said, there's no standardization of preparation. There's no regulation of the plate of concentration, and there's no um, standardized recommendations on how frequently you should give it. Um, and again, there are, if you go out and read the data, there's positive results, but you really need to understand the positive results, especially for PRP, in light of a very high contextual placebo effect. So, thank you. So, any questions? Thanks. So, questions? 
Start with John. Yes. Yeah. Great presentation. So, uh, you're, it resonated when you mentioned that NEOA leads to reduction in mobility, which then mm -hmm. hypothesize distally that you can see a increased risk of mortality. Has there been any data that's been shown early knee replacement versus late knee replacement has mm -hmm. changed those outcomes? Because presumably, mechanistically, yeah. knee OA leads to quadriceps um, reduction in quadriceps muscle mass and strength, mm -hmm. which, and we know strength is an unbelievable predictor of incident disability and mortality. You know, I, I'm not sure that there's any data. Um, on that because early would be patients say in their 50s who probably aren't going to die for a while So I'm not aware of any of the, any of specifically timing and that's a whole topic when there's if we had a litmus test You know, oh you're ready for your knee replacement. It would be great, um, but there's definitely data In general showing that if you can push that mobility up the people don't die as as early Really interesting talk. I'm wondering how much is what you talked about extrapolatable to other joints mm. or to spine and neck? Yeah, that's a great question. So being the investigator, I'd say you can't extrapolate. You have to start you know, from scratch and do all new studies. But I think the concept is probably true. The concept of placebo contextual effect is true for most things. Um, and if uh, So I, I would say pr probably, but I couldn't say for sure. I don't know that literature as well. What about all the treatments beyond the contextual? You mean, I'm sorry. Um, well, you know, injections for back pain are a bust really don't suggest that not only do they not have a placebo effect, they don't seem to work at all. Um, so I don't know about like facet joint injections. Um, I guess I can't really speak to that. But I don't have any theories about why it fits an inflammatory you know, the, the, uh, so I think, say, for HA, you know, it's been negative in, in all joints, but I think, so I did a study in the thumb that it really does seem to work. So I think um, whether it's weight-bearing or not might make a difference in how well it works. Um, and maybe other joints, so in the knee, one reason it's so inflammatory, they think there's this infrapatella fat pad, which is sort of like the local inflammatory driver, this piece of fat that's right there. It's, it has all this autocrine inflammation, so it really creates a lot of inflammation in the knee. Whether there's such inflammation in other joints to the same extent, I don't know. So that was excellent. And I just want to amplify on two points um, and get your reaction to them. Part of the contextual issue is controlling for non-steroidals. And in the uh, JAMA article, mm -hmm. intraarticular steroids, there was no control for non-steroidals. And it could confound in either way. I mean, yeah. It's not clear. I, I can say that they did tell them not to take any two days before they came in for their evaluation. Yeah. Um, but, but they let them use it otherwise. Yeah. yeah. And the other is in the glucosamine trials, um, the other point you made was that there was no consistency in preparation, and that's been a big topic in glucosamine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the big two big trials, the, the GATE and the other trial, did try to control for, you know, the, in the study environment, they control for it, and, and, you know, as you know, those were negative trials. But I agree, I mean, it's not, it, it, you, you have to know what's going into a patient to be able to evaluate it properly. I think glucosamine, I didn't talk about that here, it's an interesting and interesting, you know, patients love it. A lot of patients love it. 
And I always tell them, you know, I say, you know, there's um, Consumer Reports did a report some years ago looking, they went out and bought glucosamine chondroitin sulfate and they analyzed it. And, you know, a lot of them had like basically nothing in it. I, I, I have no shares in Costco, but the one at Costco was the one that was, the Kirkland brand was one of the more consistently um, correct had what they said. So I tell my patients, don't, you know, mortgage your house to buy it, but if you think it helps, you know, I'd go to Costco and buy the big vat because that seems to be the one that actually puts in what they say. Thank you for your presentation. At, at the beginning of your presentation, you showed this pathology of a very in, this clear-cut patient. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And the question is, and we've seen anecdotally, one patient has a great response to glucose steroids, and another patient really doesn't have any benefit. Yeah. So we're seeing stratification of things like asthma between those patients who have the eosinophils, those patients who don't. And the question is, is there a trend in time to try to identify those patients who have more of an account of loss of osteoporosis loss of cardiology mm -hmm. versus those with the inflammation to target therapy more specifically? I, and I, I think there is in, in a research um, arena, you know, clinically it's hard to know. There's at least one publication that's interesting that suggests that patients who had more inflammation actually in their knee did worse with intraarticular steroids. There's one, one publication. So we're trying to do some work in that. Where, but, you know, it, it's hard to, you can do, you can image it, but it's hard to get tissue. So actually we're, we're doing a study at, at total knee replacement patients. We're taking tissue and we're looking at it we're taking some of the fat tissue and stimulating it and seeing what inflammatory cytokines to see if there's like an inflammatory group versus non um but it we, i'd love to be able to get tissue from like patients when they come in um so i guess the answer is yes so i wonder if you know you In terms of the breakdown, you know, at least, so that might be true for endogenous, but for exogenous that we put in, it, it's definitely out of the joint. It's gone in a couple of days. It gets absorbed. So I don't know if, and when you're making your own with osteoarthritis, as you make it and it gets cut down naturally more rapidly, maybe that is more pro-inflammatory. I don't know that, but I don't think that the exogenous, that's the mechanism why it stops working. Um, and then using both together. Um, let me just think. Um, people do that. I'm not sure of the data, actually, but anecdotally, a lot of our surgeons use both together. You know, what you shouldn't do is use a local anesthetic with corticosteroids. That looks like it's worse for the cartilage. So I, I no longer do that. I used to do it. Thanks for an excellent talk. I wonder if I could ask you to extend your observations about the inflammation in these OA patients. Sometimes these patients feel they come to the end of the line and they have their total knee replacement. And then post-operatively, they don't do as well as they were hoping and the doctor was hoping with recurrent effusions and pain mm -hmm. that looks old world like ongoing inflammation after the total knee replacement. Right. Have you had any experience with those kind of patients or thinking about is there 
you've, you've sort of fixed the mechanical loss of cartilage, right. you have this new articular surface, but some sort of inflammation continues. And if you've seen those, what do you recommend for them? It's very hard. They are. So actually what got me interested in this whole area initially were these, when I was a fellow, these knee replacement patients coming to my clinic, which I was like, oh, what am I going to do? And then they're hot, they're warm, they're a year out, and they're doing terribly. So one thought is maybe these were more inflammatory from the get-go, and now, you know, some of the surgeons say, well, like, maybe we didn't get all the synovium out. I don't know about that. Um, but I can tell you, so... In that study, the, the, the one that I, where I got that piece of tissue from, we did a study. We looked at people, oh, we, we pulled their, their tissue, we looked to see who were more inflammatory, and then we looked at two years to see who did worse. And people who had more inflammation were doing worse at two years. And we also found people who had ended up getting a steroid injection at some point after their knee replacement actually did worse, right? So I think that those patients are more inflammatory, and someone tried to treat them and make them feel better, and it didn't work. So, so it seems that, that giving them injections of steroids didn't actually help them at two years. Um, so two I, years after, after the knee replacement. Yeah, so we went back. This is retrospective. So, but we, we thought, well, maybe you know, people who got um, corticosteroids, maybe they, they did better. But it's probably that the more inflammatory ones got some, a surgeon gave them steroid injection to help that inflammation, and it didn't really work. So I think probably the thing is to try and figure out who's more inflammatory before you give them the knee replacement and maybe try and mitigate it at that point. You know, I don't know the answer. Um, and I don't have a great solution for those patients who come in and are doing, have that hot, you know, swollen knee, take the fluid out. I mean, there's some data on duloxetine, maybe that helps. Um, duloxetine, maybe it helps maybe with the central sensitization, but it's a tough problem. Um, Thank you. I'm still confused about the inflammation. I heard a talk a few years ago from Harvard orthopedist saying we should change the name on osteoarthropathy. Because it's inflammatory? Because it's inflammatory. Oh. But, um, so I disagree with that. Okay. <laughs> mixed reviews, but, but it's a similar question in terms of mm -hmm. what's the best way to divide into subtypes, how many have the inflammatory subtype, and I've had a few of my patients so that's a great question. So um, there, I can say this because they've been published at, at meetings. So there's a very there are two large randomized controlled trials in inflammatory and osteoarthritis of the hands. Um, you know when it's you know really inflammatory, looking at hydro, um, hydro uh, looking at plaquenil and negative. Both were like resoundingly negative, which is depressing because you would think. And people have also, so I've tried that and you know, a little bit of methotrexate, does that help? There's no good data on that. But you, it would make sense and I think those trials would be wonderful to do. And I just want to say, I, there are definitely patients who have no, arth, no inflammation, but there's no doubt. And, and it's, I think it's not my opinion, there's really data that there's inflammation in some subsets of of NEOA at least, and you can see it on ultrasound, you can see it at surgery, and the question is, is this a group that's going to do very differently than just, you know, people who really have nothing? The same speaker said that mm -hmm. um, non-steroidals allow them to make you feel better, actually damage cartilage over time and have a negative effect mm -hmm. on natural history. Mm -hmm. Are the data strong? Um, you know, it's very, I, uh, I'm trying to think if I know of any data on that. I think it's very hard to know because who's going to get who's going to get the NSAIDs, the people in whom 
have a lot of pain and who keeps taking it are the ones in whom it works. So they're, it's sort of like, um, and they are then going to be more active. So that's also been a controversy. Are we letting patients get more active? They end up destroying the cartilage more. Um, I don't think there's strong data on that for, for um, NSAIDs that I know of. So the question about diffusion of technology. Um, Many of us in primary care do even the intraarticular steroids for for amino A, mm -hmm. but um, I, I, see, I feel constrained against using HA. That means it's like marketed and you need these three injections yeah. and buy it. And, right. Um, you know, if it may help, is there any move to make it more accessible? Because if it's right. you have to go to surgeons and yeah. go through a big process. It's, it's well, I, I don't know what the process here, but primary care docs can certainly give it. You know, there's 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 um. Formulations, it's one shot. You only have to give it once. Yeah, so there's something I can't, different companies. So I use the one shot. I don't need them to come back three times or five times, which is crazy um, if you don't need to. I, I don't see why, is it, what the constraint is, unless it's insurance or what have you. You know, it's interesting. So about two years ago, you know, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has come out saying we shouldn't use it, it doesn't work. Um, the Canadian guidelines most recently say it does work. A ACR says that, you know, maybe it works in some people. And so some of the drug companies have just started to say we're not covering it anymore. So actually our hospital is fighting that because it does work in some people, we feel, not just that we're making money off it. Um, so I don't know if that's a, an insurance barrier, but it's certainly worth trying. I mean, these patients, what, they don't have that many options. And I actually used to use it more in patients who, like diabetics, they, I didn't want to give them steroids, and who were very ill, couldn't take, you know, NSAIDs, and I would give it, and sometimes I wouldn't see a patient for a year, and I was like, okay, did they die, or is their NEOA better? And then they would come back a year later for another injection, and they said it was great. So, you know, there's patients who really, I think, can benefit, and there's data to support that. So, I don't, if you're comfortable giving me injections, sure. Okay, yeah, thank you. Yeah. So one last question. Yeah, I, I couldn't help but the one you addressed, the most impressive, uh, maybe it was the placebo Yeah. Type. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's great. So two things about that. So you can imagine, it's great, lots of attention, you feel good, people love it. Um, so there's a large placebo effect, but also just those studies were generally patients who had less pain, they were willing to try a topical, so that was a huge effect, but it was, means it was effective, but a lot of those patients weren't as in as much pain. But it definitely, you know, topical um, Voltaren, it definitely works, especially hand, and people really do love it. But it is probably a large contextual placebo effect. Yeah. But if it works, you know. Well, I think the number of questions tells you how valuable this was. Oh, well, thank, thank you. you. So, thank you.